0: Everybody and welcome back to the Skullcast, the premier podcast about Berserk from the community at SkullNight.net. I am your eternal host Walter, and joining me today for episode 141 are a hey, Krusty the Clown, yeah, yeah, uh, Grail, <laughs> start, zeal started, and Gabola Tula.
1: I can't find you. It's just me, Homer Simpson. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was the guy from Office Space again. Yeah, same. You're still in Milton mode. Oh, it's me in Milton.
0: <laughs> We're back. Uh, there's not a lot of news to discuss. Uh, I did want to give a shout out really quickly to uh, the Patreon, which is at patreon.com sknet because Azil is just about to post the last part of the Artwork of Berserk interview fully translated by Poila. So if you have not checked that out, Definitely do. I believe
1: that's for gold subscribers, which is $10 a month. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And um, I mean, they get opened up to other tiers of subscribers
0: afterwards. Correct. It does eventually trickle down into the other tiers uh, as well. So if you want to get that now, sign on up. And uh, we also have just posted part 27, I think, of our mini podcast series, if you have not checked those out. So... Patreon.com slash sknet. Uh, a better one, quick shout out about that is Azil. We haven't talked about this at all, but I just wanted to say, I thought your update on that long lost Griffith line from episode 73, where mm-hmm. there's a page that was edited uh, for the volume addition to volume 12, where Griffith is, when Guts is running to him right before the eclipse, and he says, if you bear me up in your shoulder, uh, I'll never, and then it stops, right? Yeah, and the and the anime also is incomplete, I believe. Uh, in the uh, original Young Animal, there is more text there that, that finishes the sentence, and this is something I'm pointing. I'm pointing it out because we've had to give explanations about this for the past twenty years because it's come up regularly. Like, what did people think this line meant? Mm-hmm. The meaning is actually very clear, but only if you have seen the original episode that Mira then kind of truncated the line for. So Azil gave like a deep dive explanation for. All the all the Japanese text, the translation, and explaining it all in one big post, I thought it was very handy to have all that in one place. So that was great work.
1: Nice. Thank you. I had this young animal laying about, and I was like, oh, I'll just see what there is in this one. Because, uh, you know, and then there was a color page. I was like, nice. And then I realized it's the one where that line was edited. So I was okay, I'm going to take a picture of it mm-hmm. so people can see, like, what it was like on that page and, yeah, and write an explanation for it and i'd never
0: seen the actual pages that had changed on the actual page it has just like a an ellipsis instead yeah. of the the text that got replaced like oh wow they it's a blatant change like very very visually different
1: yeah yeah well i mean like i said in the post i think uh, mura just wanted that line to be less explicit even though you can still yeah like the meaning is not hard to Derive just from the general situation and the beginning mm-hmm. of the sentence but yeah it's, it's an interesting i mean every little change he did like that is always interesting to see for sure mm-hmm. i think it's mostly notable because of the heightened dramatic moment that it is you want
0: every last morsel to derive meaning from yeah and so everyone sure. naturally is curious for well, what did he what did he try to say yeah That's all. It's one of the many updates as you does to those. So if you have not checked those out, those are well worth your time. If you're a big berserk fan on to the podcast, we're going to continue our volume 30 reread. I believe I'm up first. Uh, I'll take it. We've already kind of gone through the volume 30 cover and poster. If you've missed that, that was in the last, last episode of a podcast. Yes, we generally save those for the first part of the podcast. Eh, we kind of just steamrolled from 29 right into 30. That's just because this is one of those volumes that doesn't end cleanly. It just immediately flows into the next volume. I don't think most people care about that. It bothers me personally, and that's why I call it out. Like, Thank come you. on, it's good to have a bookend. Like, mm-hmm. you end it. Then you go to the next volume with a fresh slate, right? No, not yeah. the way this part of the series works.
1: I mean, Mira never really cared about that kind of stuff. No, I know.
0: I care, though.
2: <laughs> I like it when it works I, out that way.
1: Yeah, I understand. I understand. And to you know your point, I've thought about you know if the series is rare-headed, uh and you know there's bigger volumes, how could you cut them up so that the end points and beginnings would be more logical? Where you know mm-hmm. while still keeping each. You know, individual volumes, the same, you know, rudimentary size. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, I understand. I fully understand.
0: I think a great point and a good segue is how far we're going to get in this particular podcast is the last episode we're going to cover is a great breaking point. Because it's where the ball sequence ends. Ganeshka makes his little appearance. Yeah. And then it's out to the seashore, right? the docks. And yeah. that whole sequence of events is after. So like, this is a good, clean breaking point, I think. Yeah, I agree. But I'll get started. I have the first episode. It's Demon Tiger. Um, the festivities at the ball are interrupted when a tiger pisasha enters, eviscerating the aristocrats in the darkness before a candle is brought, and they see up close the monster that's devouring the partygoers. Farnese recognizes that it's not just a stray cat, but something connected to the astral world. The humans try to escape, but the tiger blocks their path and begins mowing through them. Meanwhile, Roderick draws a sword, trying to protect Magnifico and Vendemian, while Farnese takes action herself. Recognizing it as silver, she snatches a candelabrum and sticks it at the tiger in the eye. Farnese's family is shocked. The tiger is wounded, but not finished. And just as it's about to attack, a gust of wind arrives and Farnese lands in the safety of Serpico's arms. Then Guts and the others arrive, announcing the party is in full swing. So we talked about this episode on our Halloween spooktacular back about a year and a half ago. Uh, I had picked this scene of the tiger revealing itself, or people realizing there's a tiger in the room with them, as like one of the spookiest moments of the series. And it's all about the lighting and the dramatic tension of. Uh, people's perceptions in the dark. Like, that's what's most interesting to me visually about this episode. One of the more visually striking episodes in this sequence, I think, is because when the tiger opens the door, um, the candles blow out and the people are in darkness. The we readers can see and we know what's happening, but it's, Almost funny to watch the party goers who have no clue what's happening, even though the tiger is eating their friends. They're like, what is that noise? What's that munching sound? <laughs> and then they get blood on them, but they're not exactly sure what it is at first, right? Yeah. Oh, what was that? They say. And then the candle comes. And they realize they have blood all over them. And then they turn and they see the tiger is inches away from them. And this, this, this two-page spread is so interesting because, Azil, you pointed this out. It's that their expressions on their faces are it's not the height of shock. It's that moment right before Yeah. that moment. Like they're, they're, the, the cap, the captured look on their faces is, Oh, what's this? And then, you know, the next second is going to be outright horror, but they're not quite there yet. So it's really interesting that Mira chose that just before horror moment, mm-hmm. you know, to, to really capture it for the two page spread. Yeah. Love it.
1: Yeah. For um, other
0: than, other than that, I think the tiger is very cute in several scenes here, <laughs> particularly when it's uh, kind of on its hind legs, ro- <laughs> it's smiling yeah. uh, as it's tearing through people. Um, it looks really happy that it gets to do the play with all these fun toys. <laughs> um, my cat, Hecate, uh, is our black cat, I brought back an owl, a stuffed owl from when we were in the tower in, um, where were we? Sapporo. Sapporo? Yeah. Yeah. And Sheila still plays with that owl and she just munches the hell out of it. She's already torn the ears off. So I know exactly how this tiger is feeling right now. When <laughs> oh, yeah. At in this episode. Um, but yeah, I all, all my notes about this episode are about this scene. Uh, not even necessarily the action, but it's the dramatic tension as the reveal is being made. I think it's a really, really great moment for the series. I think I've also said this, but I'll say it again. Um, on Reddit, at one point, someone had taking a picture of a bar they were at and there was like a music venue, like a, a band was playing. And so in a in a, ur- in a urinal in a bar, someone had co-opted this scene of a tiger munching on the two parade spread is like announcing their band was playing at that bar and put it next to a urinal. Like, it's like, this is such a, a hardcore metal image. Like this is our band. We're announcing our bands playing at this venue. Like, Oh wow. Berserk's making the rounds at urinals because of this. <laughs> tiger. Pretty cool. <laughs> pretty cool. Pretty cool tiger. Uh, I guess the other thing I would say uh, is that they do spend almost a full page or they Mira spends about a full page where Farnese basically crosses the veil from being a placid. I'll do whatever you say, father, uh, girl to taking action, stabbing a demon tiger in the eye that she's capable, that she can do things on her own. That's an immediate like veil piercing moment for her family's perception of her. They had no idea that she could do such a thing right and so mm-hmm. it they spend a he, he spends a big huge panel on federico himself uh, in particular who's like looks fearful yeah. almost yeah.
1: you know that, afraid yeah that page is a uh, really great uh, you know other than the you know uh, horror scene the one with uh, her father looking halfway back mm-hmm. and the others it, basically she's getting a badass reaction shot page from her dad, mother and and Magnifico and Roderick, which is usually, you know, like reserved for guts. And that's pretty cool, you know, and fitting because I think beyond what you say, piercing the veil and so on, we we see the progress she has made among, among guts group, uh, from being a babysitter to Casca to protecting Casca in some situations, to learning magic, to being able to be quick-witted and, you know, act and actually save people's lives. So it's, yeah, it's a pretty cool from a, Character development perspective for her,
3: yeah.
0: And it's also Serpico has a very cool moment at the end. Probably one of his coolest moments, a cool guy moments. Yeah. Not just not just the guy that I like, but a cool guy, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. A very Bishonen moment for him, I think. It's so funny Shonen. that you say
3: that. I literally had it in my notes. Ultimate cool guy moment for Serpico. Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> he looks yeah. so oh, totally. goddamn handsome. <laughs> Yeah, mm-hmm. this is a pretty cool moment. But uh, I like better the one a few episodes after that when he goes out to catch the the cushions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, it is. A, it is a great moment. The whole you know flying off, grabbing her, and sliding away from the tiger, just in the nick of time. Pretty, pretty
2: damn mm-hmm. cool. A Romantic scene between brother and sister. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, pretty much.
2: Yeah, that's also the thing. Is like. You're still thinking, hmm, if
1: they weren't siblings, (laughs) it might be cool. But there's also Mm -hmm. that aspect that's always a little bit, uh, I mean, you know, (laughs) weird.
0: Beyond the action and the visuals, it's also that he has a cool guy line. Like, I'm sorry, I had to step away for a moment, you know, is... They're downplaying his heroic actions, right? Yeah, and the fact works. he got
1: smacked on the head like a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to step away for a moment just to get home. He picked a fight with guts and got smacked <laughs> down, but we're just going to shuffle that off to yeah. the side. He's well, cool. Yeah, that's also funny that he, you know, shoves that aside, like, let's not talk about this. Mm-hmm. No need for that. <laughs> just focus on this moment where I'm being cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's it. That's all the notes that I had.
3: Well, speaking of cool guy moments, Guts gets his, uh, nice panel there at the end, his full page.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the party, pal. Yeah, <laughs> I, I have something to say about that because the translation Dakos used is not really great. Okay. Because what he says in Japanese, uh, he does say some things that means the parties that its peak. it's, you know, and more, take uh, takenawa, but, What it means in Japanese is it's an expression you say when it's about, it's time to wrap it up. So it's what people will say like, okay, well, the party is at its peak. So now is the time to, you know, end it before it goes down. Basically, it's what you say when you're asking people to leave a party, basically. Um, so in a sense, it's like, well, party's over. It's more like what it's saying. Mm Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's more accurate. It actually sounds cooler in Japanese than than what they did uh, with the English translation there. So, yeah, I just wanted to clarify that. All right. Uh, Unless there's anything else for this one, I'll just
0: pass the mic over to Grail. Or is it Gobs? I can't remember.
1: I'll just say one thing more about the horror scene, which I like, is uh, before even we see the reaction shot, what I think is great is uh, there's that panel where you see the breath, like the hot breath of the... uh, uh, of the tiger on, on the guys' faces just before they get uh, eaten mm-hmm. up. And I, I do think, like, the whole sequence from, you know, you see the the beast drooling. So, it, you know, get the guys to turn their backs. They see the thing. They feel its breath on their face. It eats them. And then when the guy brings a candelabra and and lits up the two noble women's faces with the blood on them, and that starts, uh, you know, the thing... Where you see the, the tiger in full afterwards on the, on the two page spread. So I just think that whole sequence, the way it's done is really, really well executed. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I just wanted to bring attention to that,
2: to that whole yeah. aspect from the small panels that bring us up to the big one. Hmm. I, yeah, I was going to say something about that as well, that, that whole darkness and the tiger lurking around. It reminded me of, uh, back when Farnese was was talking about when she first saw an elf. And it's like, she, before that, like, was she even... Were these people able, able to perceive things like this gigantic tiger, tiger in front of them? Like, I think uh, they would
0: because of the nature of what it is. It's both... Uh, it is a tiger. It's a real tiger, but it's being yeah. inhabited and controlled by the fog. So I think they would be able to perceive it yeah, even if there was Yeah, it's
1: wasn't. not a purely ethereal being. It's a, like mm-hmm. and it's a real tiger it has been possessed and it's being used as a familiar by the Kushans uh, using Ganeshka's fog. But you do make a good point where they're able to see the elves after that because they were confronted with that supernatural thing. And that's what we see in the following episodes. And it's not unlike... Uh, what you meant with uh, when Guts is, you know, captured by the Holy Iron Chain Knights and Farnese is basically refusing to see Puck and, you know, she doesn't acknowledge his presence. But then when the specters come and, like, they touch her face and look her in the eye, at that point she basically becomes unable to deny the reality of them and that's what breaks down her, like, mental barriers for seeing Puck and so on, so... Yeah, it's it's an interesting, uh, yeah, interesting detail here that because they are confronted with these tigers, afterwards they're like, "Well, we can see the elves over there," Uh, and of course, Van Diemen is interesting in how he
2: replies to that, but we'll see that later on. Mm. All right, Uh, that's it. So next is episode three hundred sixty intrusion. Right off the bat, Guts draws a sword and challenges this monstrous-looking beast, while the crowd at the party. Excuse me, While the crowd at the party looks on, scared and stunned. Owen, who is part of the crowd, recognizes Guts, but he's not sure from where. The beast growls and leaps at Guts, only to be sliced in half in an instant. The crowd can hardly believe what they just saw. Guts warns them not to congratulate him just yet, as the fight isn't over. A new group of cat beasts crash through the window and begin attacking. Farnese convinces Guts to stick around instead of fleeing, since her family is part of the crowd. Serpico takes off after Shirke tells him where the casters are controlling the controlling the pishacha are, and Guts resumes hacking the living hell out of the tiger-like beasts. So the two-page spread of Guts swinging his sword towards the tiger pishacha, followed by the close-up, the face of him. Letting out that breath is like really cool. Uh, Miro is great with pacing, and he knew the import the importance of showing not only the hacking and slashing, but the anticipation leading up to it. A funny moment to me was uh, Farnese's mom's speechless face, her face as she was looking at guts. I-, I just said, as a as an appreciator of soldiers and swordsmen at war, she clearly <laughs> was blown away right here. <laughs> Another funny moment to me is the the nobles fawning over guts only to be immediately annihilated. (laughs) I do believe uh, this moment was meant to get a a chuckle out of people, and uh, I commend Mira's ability to get a laugh even out of a gruesome moment such as this. I'd like to point out Casca's reunion with Farnese. I thought it was precious. I I really like the angle that Mira chose for this, and it's kind of... Our perspective, looking downward at the two, seeing Casca as a child looking up to an older, like an older sibling or a parent. One final note that I had: the final note was I was just thinking about how many times Mira had to draw guts, swinging his giant sword and chopping things up during Berserk. I I, I find it interesting, just how awesome I I think it is every single time it happens, and and looking at. Looking at a sword swing shot is is unique every time. Hmm. I think Kentaro Miro realized that seeing the same move again and again might give readers a little bit of fatigue if if it's not done well. Each time the sword collides with something, you can feel it caving in with such weight. Yeah, Miro was very playful with the shot composition as well. Like, the final page with the Pichacha split in half almost looks like it's forming a bloody archway around Guts, who's <laughs> almost looking like he's standing on top of a pile of monster corpses. It's absolutely beautiful to me. <laughs> Even just in the way the enemies
1: attack, it's not just like one after the other, they come at him, we see that One of the tigers jumps off a wall to attack from the air and then he smashes the two of them because he's got,
2: you know, again, such a big sword and he reacts fast and all that. It's like choreography. He's puts a lot of time and thought into these fights, you can tell.
1: Yeah, for real. And and as for the opening shot, one thing I noted is that we see that super iconic and cool thing where he grabs his sword and for a second, you know, it's up in the air uh, vertically which reminds me of uh, of the scene in the bind volume 1 where he cuts that guy in in, in half uh yeah. and and something Mira did not use very often he he i I can think of this scene I can think of the the scene from the bar but he did not often do that even though it would have been an easy shot to replicate and overuse so like you said he was very economical and made sure to try to keep things varied so that you know, just guys doing that, I mean, you know he can swing his sword any time he wants, but it's still something that has an impact on the reader. It's not, it's not nothing. It remains cool every time. Oh, yeah. So, yeah.
0: It's the way he cuts the tiger, the kayak tiger, end to end like a butcher. I mean, he, <laughs> yeah. could, he could have chosen in many ways, Mira, that is, to how to depict the ferocity of this strike, and, and the one he went with is g- gorgeously gross. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yeah, what I like about it is the, you inevitably have the reaction shot of those that have never been around guts. A couple of their faces aren't just like surprise, right? But there's also disbelief, like on Pontifico, uh, is that his name? Uh, The two Vandimian brothers.
1: Poliziano, you you mean?
0: Poliziano, thank you. Uh, And the other one, uh, it's in the lower left of one page. They both look like. That seems unlikely, is their face, uh, as they're seeing what happened. They're like, oh, what? (laughs) (laughs) So, I don't know. Unique, varied, surprised reactions that we get. Mm. Even Owen.
3: Yeah. On that note, I was going to say, I really liked how Mira, with relation to the pacing of the episode, I liked how he reintroduce the dragon slayer in the context of the noble seeing it for the first time and being like, what the hell is that? (laughs) Mm -hmm. It it kind of helps to reestablish why, you know, guts and his sword are so special in this universe, because we're so used to seeing it. And now that he's kind of back in action, it's sort of like, hey, guys, this is this is a story. And this is why the dragon slayer is so awesome. And people are just like, what, what? And it really kind of creates this tension where as readers, we're kind of used to seeing the Dragon Slayer, so this made it feel very special that it's yeah.
1: reappearing. <laughs> because they're not used to this kind of stuff, yeah, for sure. Right. Uh, also like to comment on what uh, John said about the scene with Casca. I also really like that scene and that shot of her grabbing Farnes' uh, arm. What thing I think is great is it's not just that one shot that looks nice and is cute and so on. It's also... A way to skip the awkward moment of Farnes explaining what she did, and why she did it. She was in the process of being like, mm, "Sorry, uh, w- what I did, blah blah blah." And Kaska immediately grabs her, and that's that's it. You know, <clears throat> it's like, it's done. Until of course, God brings it brings it back uh, a couple of episodes later. But the point is, the way that affection, uh, you know, completely ends the discussion because there's nothing more to be said. I think that's really great, and it's also again. Uh, a testament to how important that group has become both to Farnese and how important Farnese is to the group and Casca specifically. Mm-hmm. And on that point, there's also a part where... Well, hang on, before you transition away.
0: Go ahead. It wordlessly ties a bow in this whole separation period for Farnese. Yeah. her Casca grabbing her is all it takes to not only remind Farnese of this bond she has, but also for the readers to remind how important it is that Farnese is there for Casca. So, without any words. So, I, I like that part of
1: it as well. Mm, yeah. Yeah, for real. For real. And, uh, yeah, what I was going to say also is, uh, God, you mentioned the fact her family is there. Now, one thing I found interesting is that in Japanese, the word she used to say family is uh, nikushin, which means blood relatives. It's not mm-hmm. like kazuku. Not family. Yeah, it's not kazuku like family. It's really a specific word that means blood relatives. And I think that's... I mean, I don't think, I know that it's a deliberate choice to imply that they're, you know, her blood relatives. But it's not like, you know, there's an opposition between that group who's become a family of some kind, as we saw in the the inn where they have that discussion and then the bar fight. And these people who are her family, she was born into, but who have always been very cold to others and who she doesn't feel like she belongs to. So that's an interesting, you know, an interesting choice of words here that I thought was worth mentioning. Mm. Nice. Yeah, tell. thanks for pointing that out. Yeah. The um guts, re- the guts reaction to that plea from her as well.
0: Like you can't, we can't just abandon these people. These are my blood. Guts is like really though. I yeah. Mean, really, know,
1: do we though? For real? Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, yeah. That's also a thing I noted is that him having to get badgered into helping out the nobles <laughs> by shuriken and so on is pretty funny and. So at least I, I find it funny, though, you know, his face and all. And I think it's a great reminder of the positive influence his comrades have on him compared to his Black Swordsman era. And it's also a reminder of the guts. If he were just by himself, he'd be like, and hey, no, none of my problem. I'm just mm-hmm. getting out of here. And these guys can, you know, manage by themselves. So You know what it
0: reminds me of a little bit is Terminator 2 when John has to remind... The T eight hundred how to act like a human. And it's just like <laughs> you can't just kill people. Why
1: not? Why? Yeah, it's like okay, and then he sh- immediately shoots a guy in the knee, and he's like he'll live. He'll yeah. <laughs> <You'll> live. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. So that's a yeah, that's a pretty cool moment too. As uh, a fact, she and Shirokai's just whole thing where she's like basically almost pissed at him that uh, he he's considering, <laughs> yeah. you know, not not giving a shit. Um, That's just that that moment there and it's
0: just a two panel exchange and this moment before uh, with the the mercenary guys trying to recruit guts momentarily. Yeah. there's a little blips of comedy, yeah, interspersed with the action and the drama. I mean, fucking masterful, right? Like yeah yeah. yeah. he still has time in the midst of this dramatic tension in action. To have these these losers be like, well, nice work. Do you want to come work? It's just
1: <laughs> so good. Yeah, which is oh, also yeah. a great reflection on what kind of people these guys are. You know, it's like, yeah. like they, they are kind of despicable. You know, just because of their whole way of being and yeah. Just uh, speaking of humor, there's a thing I also found funny because it involves French. Um, it's uh, you know, Puck has got this little Tupperware because he's trying to bring food back noble food mm-hmm. back uh, with him <laughs> and at some point uh, on the panel yeah, on the same page where Casca uh, grabs uh, Farnese's arm he's got something where in Japanese it says shiru bupure so shiru it's a you know character yeah. for soup and uh, it's pronounced shiru and then there's in, in katakana bupure and basically if you read it the Japanese way it, it sounds like the French s'il vous plaît which mm-hmm. means please so it's a, mm-hmm. uh, basically, it's a play on words to say, please give me soup, which, uh, Darkos translated, uh, well, although they miswrote the French part. But, uh, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty funny. I mean, and it's also such a weird, like, no idea why Mira used French for that. No idea why he, how he even knew that expression. But, uh, yeah, just, well, just random and isn't funny. Isn't it, isn't it, I mean,
0: shiru is soup, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the th- that's the joke. Shiru yeah. sivu is the is the
1: joke. Yeah, yeah. The joke is that in Japanese, to say s'il vous plaît in French, you would say Shiru bupure. Totally, like that that's sounds the, the same. Yeah, yeah. It's just uh, it's just a joke based on the sound. My point is, mm-hmm. like, how do you even know that French word? Basically, is just you know. But uh, yeah, yeah. I, I found it delightful.
2: Yeah, He's just nice. a. Worldly- man
1: yeah <laughs> yeah yeah exactly and it's just it's one of these you know super small lines if you don't pay attention you don't even see it but uh yeah pretty funny the last page
0: I'll just say it it's like it's frizetta like but it's also better than frizetta in my opinion because it's <laughs> dynamic it's the the what's the the glimpse we get of guts through the torn tiger it's so cool it's yeah. just a Just the timing of it, obviously. It's it's the framing of it and the dynamic pose of guts. It's such an interesting shot.
1: Yeah, as a pile of like like Gob said, almost makes an an arch around Mm -hmm. him, and then you got that pile of uh, tiger corpses on the bottom. Yeah, it is, it is quite. It's one of those shots that was not like the exhibition, but you're like, why why the fuck not? Because it's fucking great, you know, and it is. (laughs) That's why I was like, man, it could have been three times bigger and, you know, wouldn't have felt out of place. And because, like, a page like that,
2: hey, you know, I would frame it and put it on my wall.
1: Oh,
3: absolutely. (laughs) There were so many that felt like that.
2: It would have been cool if they, like, rotated images, like, different days, different images. They'd swap out. That'd probably be too complicated, though. Yeah, too too much work for these guys. Oh, well.
3: If nobody has any further commentary, we can move on to the episode the rusty birdcage while guts has killed several pishacha there are still several more threatening the ball goers as he readies the dragon slayer for another round with the remaining creatures some noblemen in the crowd begin arguing over whose armies over whose army he should join their mm-hmm. exchanges are interrupted by a lunging pishacha which isidro incapacitates with one of his mini bombs just before it digs its claws into the men Meanwhile, Puck flies around requesting payment in exchange for the service of saving the lives of the nobles, and Shirke and Farnese save a pair of noblewomen from a pishacha using Shirke's new thorn, Snake Familiars, which she made after the incident at the beach to combat enemies of the physical world. Shirke places a ring on Farnese's finger and notes that it's made of the same material as the Familiars, and that she is their new mistress. Guts continues to make short work of the remaining pishacha, but Roderick steps in to help by piercing one in the mouth with his sword. Roderick asks Guts if he knows Farnese, but Guts warns him off saying that he, this isn't work for amateurs. Roderick says that he can't be saying that in front of his beloved. Roderick's pishacha snaps the blade of his sword with its teeth, but before it can kill him, Farnese uses her new thorn snake familiars to trip and distract it. She tells him to use silver to kill the creature, so Roderick follows her lead and uses a silver candelabrum to finish the job. Away from the ball broom, Serpico jumps from a nearby wall to find the Kushan magic users under a bridge on a boat. He beheads them all with a single stroke of the sylph sword, and as we jump back to the rest of the group, the Pishacha are no longer posing a threat as a result. Shirke uses a spell to paralyze the creatures. Guts returns the dragon slayer to its place on his back and Farnese summons her thorn snakes back. Now that the fight is over, the group has time to address the matter that they came for. Guts asks Farnese if she intends to stay, pointing out that her family is here. As Serpico explains through the window, or er, Serpico returns to the through the window, Farnese explains that she doesn't intend to stay with her family and that she realizes that she didn't want to return to the cage of stone where her journey began. She just missed it and wanted to stop by for a visit. Uh, so as we referenced a few episodes before, Serpico gets to have uh, another super cool guy moment. Uh, killing the Kushan magic, magic users uh, is, you know, definitely a dramatic moment. And I feel like this whole part of the story, there's, there's so many great moments with Serpico. So as a fan, I'm, I'm very grateful. <laughs> um I love that Roderick jumps into the action and kind of introduces himself and, uh, we get to see a little bit more of how he reacts to, to dangerous situations and how he's reacting to guts, which is, is really interesting. Uh, I thought it was cool how a couple of episodes ago he was, he had his sword out ready to take on a Pishacha himself because no, nobody else was able to, I guess. And, uh, even though Guts and everyone are kind of taking taking control of the situation, he still wants to help. And not only that, he you know responds well to Farnese and to Guts and, and doesn't seem threatened at all, which I, I thought was a great uh, detail for his character. Uh, and just in general, I thought that he and Farnese had a really nice moment together where she saves him. Mm. Uh, I liked uh, uh, regarding pacing. I liked how. Again, this was another great example of how Mir intersperses humor throughout a very action-heavy situation and gets everyone else involved, so it's not only Guts, and, and Guts got to have his kind of cool guy slasher episode, and now everyone else is getting involved and getting to show their strengths and kind of reminding the reader of why they work well together as a group. Uh, and Just a random extra observation I had is that Obviously, this part of the story includes a lot of crowd illustration. So not mm-hmm. only Mira is obviously doing a lot of work here, but you can, <laughs> I thought it was funny. I was mentioning this to Gob earlier. You can kind of see the, uh, the panels where, uh, assistants yeah. have to get in there and do a little bit of the work because the faces look a little wonky. Yeah. Uh, but it just makes you appreciate Mira's crowd faces more because I feel mm. like they have a lot more emotion and nuance. Uh, whereas others by the assistants are, are not quite there yet. But still, a lot of crowds, a lot of people in there, so you, I, I appreciate the effort for sure. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, I'll hand it over to you guys for further analysis.
1: Yeah, you covered a lot of grounds, and I'll just mention that, I think I mentioned it uh, maybe on the previous podcast, but, yeah, these episodes and then the one with the army battles are really great ones also some of them previously in in Ritanis are great to see like the difference between like uh, what Mira did as far as character faces and what the assistants did and you can see that on some of these panels, it's really clear. Uh, for example, the one where, uh, Puck is asking money, you can see that on the bottom panel, the faces are definitely done <laughs> by assistants. Um, there's, there's a lot of these. And sometimes you can even see, like, in the same panel, which part, uh, Mira did, where, like, he did the three character faces at the forefront. And then there's, you know, three others in the background, uh, which the assistants did. So for people who care about that kind of stuff, uh, yeah, it's interesting to see. I think that's okay. I mean, like, because
0: it, I, I would not notice those unless I was really looking for them. And I think it gives the impression that they are all of the same, on the same, of the same art quality. They're just not, they don't hold up to scrutiny, is the problem. You know, yeah. they fit in, but they're not, they, if you scrutinize it, absolutely those guys stand out. It's like, there's no question which one are Miura and which ones are. And obviously, to me, the way you, the litmus test is, Do they have an interesting face? Do they have interesting characteristics on their face? Those are mirrors, you know what I mean? Uh, The other ones look very boring looking.
1: Yeah. Or not mirrors. What's interesting, I mean, obviously, I mean, we're just talking about it because we are like perusing and pouring over this stuff. What's interesting to me is that there's not that many that are actually done by the assistants, and so it shows that like, as we already knew, but Mura really did most of the work, on, on mm-hmm. you know, on Berserk. It's really, like, the did less than 10% of the work. So, that's quite unusual uh, for a mangaka. And also the fact... So, in some of them, you can see that he actually went over it after the stance to, like, uh make it a little better, which is also something, he, obviously, he did for, for every episode. So, yeah, those are interesting... Again, interesting details for people who care. But, yeah, if you're just reading... Like, unless you're pouring over the stuff, uh, it might not jump out to you. Um, another thing I wanted to say is, uh, I really like the two page spread at the beginning of guts, like putting the sword back and getting ready to get to, to take on the tigers, the remaining tigers. Uh, it's a great dynamic pose with the cape and stuff. Um, so yeah, I quite liked it. And, and the tigers also look kind of cute in it. So yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's just pretty funny. It's, it's an interesting design. I mean, we already talked about it, but the fact with the Ganishka eyes and teeth, they look kind of almost like, you know, uh, cats that have been overbred and are kind of degenerated. And, you know, they're like, their eyes are not, not right and stuff like that. So they kind of have that degenerate look to them, which is, uh, almost endearing in a way, even though they are like man-eating monsters.
2: Right. So. The way I felt about, like, the cave troll in the first Lord of the Rings movie. Like, oh, poor guy. Um, Something
1: you mentioned, Grail, but uh, it's a fact there's some characterizations for, you know, other members of God's group. And, for example, Isidro, he's got basically one panel with a couple of lines, but I thought it's really great characterization for it where he's kind of bragging, like he threw a, a little bomb and saved some guys and he's brag, he's like speaking down to them, like, you know, stick to the walls and then thinking, yeah, it feels good talking down to mm-hmm. these morons. <laughs> and, you know, it's like just one panel is enough to, you know, gives you his character's vibes and how he reacts to that situation. So I thought that was really really well done and very economical in how it's done. Um And for Serpico, I also think, like, when he slashes those guys, that's his meanest look in the series.
2: It's the coolest shit ever. <laughs> yeah.
1: He looks like he looks fucking pissed and, like, he's not fucking around here and, honestly, his meanest look in the series to me.
0: Yeah. It's a little, it's honestly... <laughs> It's like Batman uh, mm-hmm. coming down from, you know, but also he lands one foot on those little dock things um, on the, their dock that what do you call them? posts Yeah, coming out of the water. Very cool, cool guy moment. And just every shot in that page has a dynamic angle to it, like from looking up at Serpico at the moon behind him, and then they're looking down and then all of it's really, really well done. A yeah. little, almost overdone for what's happening. Honestly, <laughs> he's
1: beheading four guys. Actually,
0: eight guys. Uh, in one move motion.
1: Yes, yeah, the fact we, I mean, we we just see three heads. So maybe he only he only got the magic users and uh, oh know, yeah, sure. the guys at the back. But yeah, w- I also just like the fact we see only the silhouettes of the faces, mm-hmm. and because again, that's also in itself that's so very hard, you know, uh, visually impactful and, and cool. So yeah, that's nice. Yeah, you mentioned it, but I just wanted to point out that it is
0: extremely characteristic of Asidra to have this acting like a hero moment, but also in the back of his head, he's like taking some pride in it. You know, like he's yeah. not a selfless hero kind of type. He's like, hey, hey, it feels nice that these guys are dependent on me. <laughs> well, he's like, stay behind me if you want to live. When secretly,
1: right. he's like, hey, 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 yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, well, I um, mean, he's typical of he. He's still a a kid, so that's makes yeah. sense, you know. The two things
0: I wanted to mention were the thorn snakes familiar, uh, which when we they we were first debuted, uh that emphasis of the thorn and the rose, I could not help but have my gears in my head turning about what does this mean for Skull Knight, whose symbol is a thorn and a rose. Uh- <laughs> But uh, I don't think it amounts to anything. It's just a, no. uh, it's just a thorned rose. Yeah. <laughs> but gosh, it really, really at the time I was like, well, how can I make sense of this when it comes to Skull Knight? Is he a familiar? Is he being controlled by someone? No, that would make sense.
1: Yeah. I,
2: there's,
1: I, there's I remember at the time thinking about
2: imagery and Berserk like that, and it just kind of lends to the how things in this world are kind of connected. I'm not sure about that. In a vague <laughs> sense,
1: it's an interesting introduction that kind of gets mm-hmm. forgotten after that because she doesn't use them very often, Farnese, but uh, the fact she graduates a bit as a magic user by getting these familiars, the fact Shirouke herself made familiars using inanimate, I mean, not inanimate objects, but plants, you know, um, basically vines, only vines, uh, could make them like that. That's just an interesting thing, uh counterpart to the kind of familiars the cushions are using. Oh, yeah. So there's that interesting aspect to, to them. Uh, and then the, there's a joke about it that I'm, I'm not sure it's clear in, um, uh, in the official translation, but because in Japanese, thorn is ibara, mm-hmm. And so when Shuke gives the name, uh, mm-hmm. Ibarra no Hebi, which means serpents of thorns or snakes of thorns or whatever, uh, mishears it and she's like, Oh, it's, Ibarera no hebi, which means it's basically the Ibarreira snakes, basically. (laughs) And so after that, forever, she's like, those are my snakes. Yeah, (laughs) my snakes did the job. And they're the best snakes because they are my snakes. Because in Japanese, you can use like, you can speak of yourself using your own name. It's something like that. So it becomes kind of a little joke, uh, which I find quite adorable. And again, very typical of elves and very funny. That's very cute.
0: Yeah, it's one of those things that just does not come across without having known the, the Japanese for it. Because in, in The Dark Horse, it, it just sidesteps that completely. It shows this small panel of uh, Evelera um, kind of tickling the bottom of the snake's head and saying, they're mine, I'm the true mistress. But that, that's all you get, mm. which doesn't have any connection. Yeah. Otherwise, he's just saying it. The other thing I wanted to point out was that you mentioned it, Grail, but you know the fact that Roderick is not standing with the crowd, he's taking action. You know, and he even kind of says it partially it's because he can't, he he has to fight step for up. his beloved. Right. He has to step up. But also I think just for the reader, it's showing that this is not just a common dude. He's not also a faker either. He's someone that can fight, wants to fight and is capable. Yeah. Uh, which sets up precedent right. for him being that character for as long as we know him. Right. He's not, he's not like the others. He will step up and help and fight. So that's cool.
1: Yeah, I think very simply it shows that he's courageous and uh, Mm -hmm. that's where you... uh, We mentioned it on the previous podcast where he's talking with Manifico about their plans. They want to explore and, you know, grab the wider world and get out of that confinement and and so on. And then when they're confronted with reality, uh, Roderick, who is a military officer, he steps up and he tries to fight. Like he's in over his head and without the group he would be dead. But still... He, he tries to do something. He fights and, and no one else does. Like all these nobles are just taken aback as they're not doing anything. And that's the beginning of him being like, like, say, revealing that there's more to him than just what we saw. While for Manifico, there's not more to him than that. He's just, he was just that guy outside of that yeah. environment. He's got nothing. He's just basically a clown. So yeah, an interesting way to, to show us a beginning of development for his character. The way this episode ends, it always kind of puzzled
0: me. Not that I didn't understand it, but that there's so much emphasis given on this kind of what seems like a throwaway line from Farnese, where she's saying, I just missed it and wanted to return again. And that's all, but there's a lot happening just beneath the surface of what she's saying. Like implicitly, what she's really saying is that I've grown since I was last here, And also being raised in an aristocrat family uh, is parallel to being like a rich kid these days where you always have your family to fall back on yeah. uh, someone like her, she could always have settled here and been safe uh, and have a boring, placid life, but she would have been safe. And you know, she, in this moment, she's choosing you know, recognizing that that's not the life that I want. And I have another family that I want to return to. So yeah, all those things are there in this line, but I don't think what she's saying is just so superficial compared to what actually is happening. What she's really saying is, I've grown and changed, and I have a real family I want to return to, not here.
1: Yeah, yeah. the thing is, this is basically her saying goodbye to her family. She's like, and that's because her face, like, we see quite a face for her. And, And what's interesting is she's speaking to Guts. Like, we see the reaction shot of the others, but... She was speaking and facing God. So it's not even sure if she turned to look at them or anything like that. But I think Mira wanted to show her face and the the emotions, the very complex emotions that are welling up inside of her. And yeah, what she's saying is basically, I'm not like I'm done with these people and that place and that life. And so basically, that's her saying goodbye. And that's why there's that emphasis. But it's true that, I, again, I think it's something that's more of a linguistic thing, where mm-hmm. in Japanese you can you can say things in an understated manner and which we carry weight, and that doesn't necessarily translate very well in English, or at least you have to adapt it a bit. So that may be why there's also that that uh, dissonance. But yeah, basically, I think that's why that's what is there to it.
0: Yeah, it is a downplayed moment, but like following the panels, it is an emotional. Like a revelation for her as well, because having each of her family be part of that page as well, you know, yeah. that, that's the true audience for what she's saying.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Even, uh, Magnifico, Roderick. And that's why we see, well, I mean, all of her family. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, to get, to get back to what I was saying earlier about the, um, the, the word for family, because Gats also uses a word for family here. And he also doesn't use Kazoku. He uses, uh, oyakudai, which means, Parents and siblings, like your parents and your brothers, basically. So it's also interesting that, again, it's not, he doesn't use the same word she did. He uses another word, but it's also a word that's quite specific about what it refers to. And it's not just a general word for family, because again, you know, you could argue that the group has become kind of a family for him, so it's for her. So it's a, uh, yeah, just also an interesting point to mention, I think. Uh, that's all I had. It's a really, a lot happened. Mm.
0: And uh, short pages there
1: maybe just a uh, last thing about the the little Puck impression because he, he does an impression of kind of a, an accountant style guy you know with uh, glasses <laughs> and and an abacus when he's trying to extort money from I mean trying mm-hmm. and succeeding in extorting money from the nobles <laughs> because after that he's got trouble carrying his purse mm-hmm. uh, but yeah it's uh, at the time uh, Pull uh, who had checked it Found out that it's based on, um, on a TV, on, on a, the host of an old TV show in Japan, which basically looked like that. Like, you know, slick back hair, big ass glasses and, uh, was loud and doing stuff about money on TV in Japan. You know, they've got these TV mm-hmm. shows that are very, very specific, let's say. And so, yeah, it's based on that kind of thing. So it's also a very, specific cultural reference that you know as a foreigner unless you're told what it is you just can't understand so just so that might be useful for listeners to know very nice yeah all right so over to you yeah next episode is declaration of war so we open with the novels commenting on what just took place the monsters god's prowess the elves and the supernatural aspect of it all Uh, A bunch of soldiers arrive after the battle, of course, for the cavalry and proceed to surround God's group, but Federico de Vendimian intervenes. He thanks them and gets the noble to applaud their efforts. Then he proceeds to explain the way that what just happened. He's like, there was no magic at play. The tigers were just drugged, deformed, cross bred beasts. The elves and the rest are due to a mass hallucination from either something in the drinks or from the fog, and he's urging everybody to keep a cool head, stay focused on the march that will begin the next day for the war. And just as he's convinced about everyone, the fogs that are guarding in the room through the tigers and so on gathers into a single mass and a giant face formed in the room, Ganishka. He berates Van Damien and he issues a declaration of war on all of them, telling them that it was just the beginning of a nightmare with that end. The thought then unnaturally retreats outside. Of course, Guts and Shiruki immediately recognize him for what he is, an apostle. And right at that moment, people notice light from outside. The harbor is on fire. And that ends our episode. Um, Not a lot to say about this. But uh, quite a bit as well. Uh, I think Casca prickling her finger on the, uh, the, the serpents of swords is so, so cute. It's a great scene. And it's one of the things I often say is that if you check what she's doing in the background, it's often, it's like a little adventure in and of itself. So, you know, great, great (laughs) thing. I like how Farnese's mother ponders how Farnese has changed outside of the bounds of a family. It's kind of the last time we see her, so it's a it's a nice realization that she's like, hmm how how far she's going and she's even almost jealous of her. Um Vendimier's ability to rationalize and bullshit away the stuff he doesn't get. is shown to be quite exceptional, I would say it's like the you know, the main part of the episode, even Isidro gets doubts, which is pretty funny. And, <laughs> and Puck himself eventually gives up on like trying to claim he exists. Uh, so yeah, it, it, it shows that he's quite adept at what he does. Like he's charismatic and he's a great politician. So even, you know, even to the point that even Guts recognizes him to be tough, uh, as he tells Fornese and, I find her expression when she agrees to be quite funny. It's like, yeah, I mean, if you knew what I, what Avenger with this guy, uh, so it's, it's it's a pretty funny moment to me. Uh, also, worth noting that the nobles are suspicious of Farnese herself, And they're like, mm, is, is she a witch? And so, Vendyman, in a way, is protecting his own reputation by doing this. So that's also an aspect to keep in mind that by you know absolving uh her group and and herself and so on, it's not just doing the right thing, it's also doing the right thing for me, for himself. Mm-hmm. And of course all of that makes Ganishka's intervention all the better. Because Vandimios was so successful in convincing that you know all of them that it's nothing, brushing it all aside. Uh when Ganishka comes in and be like, No, I'm gonna crush you all like bugs, I mean that's all the more powerful. So really great uh, moment uh, overall. Um, and that's about all I have to say. Maybe uh, one last thing is that we see uh, when when Puck is uh, shaking a banner to say he exists. So the text on it <laughs> in, is obviously a reference to uh, Descartes. I think, therefore I am. Uh, one <laughs> thing worth mentioning is that the flag itself, uh, which has Puck's face instead of the the Japanese sun, but I think it's a reference to, uh, with the student uniform and banner, I think it's a reference to the student protest of the uh, of, of 68 in, in Japan, but I'm not entirely sure. What's notable to me is that uh, Mura was quite heavily criticized in Korea at the time when the episode came out, because the flag resembles the old rising sun flags that the ja- Imperial Japanese Army used to use. And so they are very sensitive about that flag in in Korea and China. And uh, yeah, just interesting that he used it, probably not meaning anything specific by it, but uh, yeah, he got some shit from it at the time in in Korea. So just something uh, yeah I thought was interesting to mention. And I'm I'm done, so you guys tell me what you thought.
3: Uh, Just a short uh, observation. I love how... The crowd claps for guts in the group when Van <laughs> yeah. Damien thanks them. And it's just such a weird, like, moment of, of, uh, like, not hypocrisy, but just weird given the setting. Because they're surrounded, presumably still surrounded by dead bodies. And they're all just mm-hmm. like, oh, yes, thank you, everyone.
0: <laughs> it's just it's like, like, they're used to like performers. Yeah. Good you show. Know? Yeah, good show. Yeah, good show.
1: <laughs>
3: yeah it just – exactly. It just shows how out of touch these people are. Like surrounded by even their own peers being dead. They're like, oh, well done, everyone.
0: I think it's intentional of a way to distance themselves from what just happened as if it was a show. It's like yeah. the first part of his argument, right, yeah. is that – Uh, It makes it feel a little less serious because of clapping for it. And then he says it was likely a hallucination. I mean, it's pretty obvious what he's doing. He's trying to reassert control from a scenario where he had absolutely no control. So he's going to weave whatever story he possibly can to make sure things are still weighing in his favor, even though they are so clearly spiraling out of his control. You know, that's what's so interesting here is how... He's trying his hardest while looking so calm. <laughs> and then it just gets whisked right under him when Ganishka appears. Something that's undeniable. Something that is way more powerful. Uh, suddenly asserts itself in the room in a way that can't be denied. You know, that's what's so cool about this. is You can imagine the kind of series where, yeah, maybe it was an illusion. And we never get to know the series. Nope. <laughs> Here's the magic emperor. He's right here. He's hovering above <laughs> you in fog. It's just this... Very dramatic reveal of Ganeshka uh, in the in the ballroom in the in the ceiling.
3: And to further that point about Lord Van Damien, uh, I really liked how Mirror portrayed his expressions. Like he 100 is is you know, you know, trying to <laughs> trying to impress upon the crowd like this this illusion thing. And you don't even see him with like the little sweat drop, mm-hmm. which would be like him being stressed or something. Like that. he's totally cool as a cucumber yeah. right now.
0: Yeah. Calm and in control, yeah. That's his whole superpower. He's yeah. calm and control. He weighs everything, he knows the the weight of everything, he can control everything until he's presented with something that's just beyond his control and his understanding, which is Kanishka. So Yeah. Yeah, he's out of his depth at this point. Way out of his depth. But uh I'm sure after this scene, he's probably like, Maybe I drank too much, you know? <laughs> we don't we only see him again once, I think, uh on the front lines. Mm-hmm. In the next couple of episodes um, yeah guts reaction to being in the presence of an apostle uh, immediately puts him on guard obviously and shirke senses a little bit of that as he's thinking about things and so that's kind of the beginning of really we don't get a whole lot of it actually between shirke and guts about his feelings for apostles and that particular mood that puts him in but she detects it here
1: yeah she also Doesn't... she also feels that uh, they are the same kind of it's, he's the same kind of being as uh you know creatures who attacked uh, Flora's mm-hmm. mansion, which, which is what she detects you know with their art and so on, whereas for him it's just a brand and he immediately knows that feeling so it's an I'm saying the page after that though. You, you mean oh Aya, yeah, what she feels uh, towards his response and the fact he's tensing up, basically? Correct. Yeah, it's a part of him that she knows about, but they have not really
0: addressed uh, directly like this. She knows it from his past, from talking with Flora.
1: Yeah, and uh, I, I think, like, even beyond that, it's because he's thinking that Griffiths might be there, so he must be mm-hmm. extra, you know, like clenching his fist extra hard, basically. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I I do surprisingly have which little to say about this than i thought i would but yeah i the fact that they clapped i don't think i even drew attention to it but it is funny uh and it's the jiro is really living it up with this why does he have a long nose i don't know why but i love it
1: yeah <laughs> that's also something i'm pretty sure i mean i'm sure there's a reason uh based on the japanese lines and i didn't mm-hmm. have time to check it out oh i don't worry about it but it's yeah.
2: like uh the comedy sort of thing like the The long nose thing happens in manga and anime whenever, mm. you know, a character has like an inflated ego due to, okay, you know, yeah. someone kind of complimenting them. They're like, oh, oh yeah, well I'm not that great.
0: <laughs> the The monologue, the inner monologue we have from Lady Vendemiae is interesting because she's both recognizing that her daughter has been become a witch but also that that power is allowed was what allowed her to become independent and so she's uh, envious of it. And so when she Carnese is called out as it could could only have been magic, she had this sweat drop on her like as if she's protective of her, of her daughter. Like she's nervous about what might happen if her daughter is labeled as a magic user. Now, mm-hmm. it's just a small little panel, but it's like she's suddenly suddenly defensive or possessive of, you know, in a way of her daughter.
1: Yeah, I see because uh, she
0: recognizes that she her, her daughter has done something special and unique through this power whatever it was it allowed her to be independent.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh that's kind of an overanalysis I would say. I think even though she was not a very caring mother, she would still like she would feel bad if her daughter was like put to death because she you know, mm-hmm. she she acted to save people at the party, so I, I think it's more of a just a mother being like, you know, come on guys. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. I don't know if it's over analysis because that's all she's saying on the previous
0: page. I'm just kind of giving, I'm saying it's kind of cashed in. That care in that moment is kind of cashed in when you see her Mm -hmm. looking nervous about her daughter. Mm. That's all. Yeah, and then Van Damien asserts control. Uh, the Kagoto Ergosum, Ergo I think it's, I mean, I think he has the same thing in Flora's manner when they're talking about that. And, and Isidro was saying, well, why don't we just all agree to disagree that elves exist and then they'll all go away is what he says in the in the tree. <laughs> and then Puck says the Kagoto sum, thing back then as well.
1: <laughs> yeah, he does something similar, yeah. Mm-hmm that i guess that's it uh, yeah
0: and then we are introduced to the docks right we see that one full page of what's coming which is the docks on fire with the glowing horizon and the red in the sky and yeah we'll be there for the next several episodes volumes actually i think it's two, volume and a half more of the uh, dock battles to come yep nice i guess that's the show thanks for listening and we'll be back in another month where uh, there's no news about another berserk episode but even if it is and in case you don't know our current policy is if it's not worth discussing we're not going to discuss it if there's not a whole conversation to have on it we're just not going to have it that makes sense right so all right that's what we're going to do and we'll continue with the reread project and we'll see it through that's all it we'll be back in a month
3: all right thanks guys all right bye-bye. 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 bye 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 bye
0: The Skullcast is a production of Skullknight.net, a Berserk fan community. If you like what you heard, please visit patreon.com sknet. Donations there do not go towards the podcast, but instead toward our resident translator, Puella, who ensures that our members have access to high-quality, text-based translations of Berserk. Puella has also been translating interviews with Berserk's creator, Kentaro Miura. Many of these interviews have never been translated into English, so it's very exciting to read those. That kind of work simply wouldn't have happened without support from our donors. If you'd like to chip in a buck or two, please know that it all helps. Once again, that's patreon.com sknet. If you have a question or want to comment on the podcast, visit our forum, skullnet.net slash forum. Near the top, you'll see a section devoted to the podcast. There's always an active thread in there, so go ahead, leave a post, and someone's sure to respond
2: quickly. Thanks for listening!